Hi, and welcome to the Remain Faithful podcast. My name is Hannah, and I'm your host. On today's episode, we will be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10, through 10, and discussing Paul's famous thorn in the flesh, considering specifically how it applies to us today. Thank you for tuning in, and let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Remain Faithful podcast. It's me, your host, Hannah, and I'm so excited to be back making episodes. For those of you who don't know me in real life, I'm a college student, and with the end of the semester came a lot of exams and projects and things that had to be completed, and then in the Christmas season, you know, just trying to relax with my family, make some good memories with people who I don't live with, Um, and then after that I had to move, and I had to take my entire life and uproot it and change my location and go through a very difficult process, and now the semester has started again and we are back in the thick of it with the Remain Faithful podcast. Um, In addition to taking a sabbatical just to reset, rejuvenate, come up with fresh new content, there were also other reasons for me to take a step back, and I think that's going to become incredibly apparent as we go through this episode. So today we're going to be talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10, through and my hope for this episode is to provide a soothing balm to what has felt like an endless encore of struggle from what we carried into this year left over from 2020 and what has already occurred in 2021. Today I want to turn to the Word and take a clear look at the strength of the Lord in the light of our struggles. I want to take time to resolve some things from the past year that maybe we haven't let go of, and once again set our hearts anew on the light of Jesus. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verses 1-5. through And the scripture reads, Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. So that's pretty strange, I will definitely admit. And so in order to understand what's going on in this chapter, we got to set up a little bit of context for chapter 12. The context for chapter 12 really comes to us from chapters 10 and 11, and I highly recommend those chapters. There is some absolutely incredible teaching that Paul presents. But to briefly summarize it, people in the Corinthian church were essentially undermining Paul's authority as an apostle. There was a group of individuals who were attacking him on the basis that he was quote-unquote weak, both in appearance and force of speech, meaning that he did not present himself strong in the way that was expected, or at least they expected, of an apostle of Christ. Their argument was that Paul writes this absolutely stinging letter, but when he shows up in person, it was almost like the arrival of an entirely different man, a little bit of Bible history on the Corinthian letters in and of themselves. Obviously, 1 Corinthians was written before 2 Corinthians, but there was actually a middle letter in between 1 and 2, which would make 2 Corinthians 3 Corinthians, but it, it was lost. But other historical texts tell us that the middle Corinthian letter that was lost to the archives, or who knows what, was very, very scalding. It was a harsh rebuke that Paul had written to the Corinthian church. And this second Corinthians that we have in our Bibles comes off of the heels of that letter. And so that's a little bit of context for where Paul was coming to from the church with his rebuke of them and things of that nature. 
Another thing that we have to really take into consideration just when we consider Paul in general is his physical characteristics. Now, Paul was not a big man. Now, I'm talking he was between, historians say he was between 4'6 and 5'2. So Paul was a little dude. He was also bald, bow-legged, and after the crushing hardship of all of his life and the trials that he experienced, he was super worn and weathered. On top of all that, Paul was born in about 6 AD, and 2 Corinthians was written in 55 AD, as you know, told by historians. And so at the time of writing this letter, 2 Corinthians, he was 49 years old, which in that day was old. Now I'm talking old. The life expectancy in the biblical times was around 30 to 35, a figure that is likely quite skewed due to a high infant mortality rate. But regardless, Paul was really old. So when we see this group of people attacking Paul and his apostolic authority, they are coming both from the standpoint of Paul writing these really brutal letters to their church about the sin that was infiltrating in the church and the way that they were turning away from the teachings of Jesus. And Paul also saying all this is a very unseeming man. He's a very humble man in appearance. And so this whole situation sets up Paul's defense of his apostolic authority that brings us to the glorious writings of chapter 12. So now that we have that context set up, we can return back to those first five verses now. This introduction to chapter 12 is very strange. It sounds like Paul is speaking of somebody that he knows, a friend, ministry partner, some of the like, but the reality is that he is speaking of himself in the third person. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never personally told a story about myself in the third person under the guise that it was about someone else. This is incredibly strange. He talks about knowing a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago, and then he says twice, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. He repeats that point. And this is incredibly, incredibly interesting, and it is very telling of Paul's character. Paul, as we know, was a man who was incredibly versed in scripture. And one of the texts that really anchors this section as well is Jeremiah 9 verses 23 through 24 that say, So let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is a text that comes up several times throughout the epistles and the gospels as something that is continually being referred to in the way that Christians should orient themselves in the nature of boasting and what is worthy of such a discussion or such an expression. Another thing to consider in parallel with Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, this idea about boasting only in the Lord. In verse four, the use of the word paradise, where Paul says, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. The Greek word for this is paradisios, which means the third heaven. This is a term used in the New Testament to refer to a place of blessedness where the Father himself dwells. Now, the third heaven, that's a little bit confusing, but essentially the first heaven, quote-unquote, is the flying space, which is for the birds, and that's the atmosphere where the clouds sit. The second heaven is outer space, where the sun, the moon, and the stars are allowed to reside. And then the third heaven is the unseen realm, where, like I said, is the dwelling place of the Father. So what has essentially happened here in these first five verses is Paul has told this story of a man who was granted passage to the third heaven, and he tells this story as if someone else experienced this, when in reality, it was himself. Now, in the context of the massive debate going on about Paul's apostolic authority, 
In the middle of this debate, Paul has this smoking gun of evidence on the matter of his authority. The fact that he was granted passage to heaven by means of vision slash revelation. And instead of utilizing this occurrence to bolster his anointed status, he basically says, nah, no, that was just my homie. That was just a homie of mine. I don't know. Maybe he was in the body, out of the body. I don't know. And this is absolutely remarkable. Many people in modern culture, whenever something happens, they are incredibly quick to share it with other people and say, oh, I had this experience. Oh, I did this. Oh, me. And that is something that we hear over and over and over again, especially in Western culture in the 21st century. Experiences that you have in the secular society are valued basically above anything else. And we see Paul here present to us a character that is so humbled he will not even take credit for one of the most remarkable things that has ever happened to him in his life. And I kept thinking to myself reading this, what produces this kind of character that is unwilling to glorify themselves even though they were granted a blessing by the Father and they will not take that credit and they will instead utilize everything about the occurrence to bring glory to the Father and take no glory for themselves. And that is where we find ourselves as we roll into verse six. Verse six says, for if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth, but I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, verse seven, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Paul here says, you know, I can boast because to do such a thing would be able to tell the truth and telling the truth is an honorable action. That's what he says. If I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool for I'd be telling the truth. And the Bible commends truth as something that is honorable. However, he tells us that he won't share and he will spare us this dissertation that he was rightly able to give. He does this for the purpose so that no one can credit him with something that they don't see in him or hear from him directly, which is insane. This is essentially like him showing up to a job interview without a resume, not having a rap sheet to provide any credibility to himself. And this is so bold when we consider the circumstance that Paul is facing with the criticism of some of the members of the Corinthian church. They're attacking him for being weak in stature and weak in speech. So what they can see and hear is essentially nothing but his weaknesses. And yet he welcomes it. Here we see nothing but complete and utter dependency on the strength of the Lord to accomplish his good purpose despite Paul's physical shortcomings. And yet again, I ask myself, what produces this remarkable character? In my humble opinion, this is one of the most incredible things about Paul. And it's his ability to utterly shed the need to prove himself and take no credit for anything that he does in favor of glorifying the Lord in everything. With this in mind, we return to verse 7. Oh, this famous thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what this is, and it has been heavily debated, but common theological answers to the question of what was Paul's thorn are 
maybe an inner psychological struggle such as grief over his earlier persecution of the church or sorrow over Israel's unbelief or continuing temptation, something internal, psychological, maybe mental. A second idea is that maybe it was some of his opponents who continued to persecute him. A third option is some kind of physical affliction that made it difficult for him to serve, maybe caused him a lot of pain, or fourth, some kind of demonic harassment, as we see, he calls the thorn a, quote, messenger of Satan. Now, most theologians prefer the form of the third view, since the thorn in the flesh would seem to suggest a physical condition. But again, we have no idea what this is. And I think it was a very strategic omission on Paul's behalf. He says twice in this verse, so that he would not exalt himself. And this is critical to the situation that Paul repeats this phrase twice in the same sentence. Now, reading this from the ESV translation, I typically read in the CSV because it is very special to me, but reading this in the ESV translation, it says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We have this idea of the thorn being given to Paul so that he would not exalt himself and he would not become conceited, both which are states of elevating one's status above what is appropriate, especially for a Christian trying to glorify the Lord. One thing that is so remarkable is that in verse 2, Paul says that he knows a man in Christ who 14 years ago 14 years and we see in verse 7 that the thorn was given to keep Paul from becoming conceited about the surpassing greatness of the revelations and so it is logical to take from this text that there is a possibility Paul had this thorn in the flesh causing him excruciating pain for 14 years and again I think it was incredibly deliberate of Paul to not tell us what this thorn was that tormented him for so long because due to the ambiguity the following sentences become applicable to us as believers in just about every situation so we now turn to verse 8 and it says concerning this i pleaded with the lord three times that it would leave me now this has an obvious parallel to the garden of Gethsemane, where jesus was pleading with the lord three times to remove the cup of crucifixion from him in Matthew chapter 26, this is where we observe this text. Jesus is begging the disciples to stay awake and pray, but they keep falling asleep. And Jesus is begging the Father simultaneously, again, three times to allow the cup to pass from him. Praise the Lord it didn't. I mean, praise God it did not pass. As now we get to receive the ultimate forgiveness and salvation due to his marvelous sacrifice. But in verse 41 of chapter 26, something interesting happens. And Jesus says to the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We often get this twisted, placing ourselves under the assumption that although the spirit may indeed remain willing, we ourselves are strong and capable of self-preservation without any consistent help from the spirit. Now, of course, there is a little bit of context here that we have to uncover. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is speaking specifically about the weakness of the flesh to stay awake. However, the statement that is made, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is universal. That is something that is a fact. 
the weakness of the flesh is a universal truth that we can observe in basically every level of our lives, right? Paul is making this case about weakness, that he will boast on the basis of his weakness. And he recognizes that he is not at all capable. And that the flesh, even though the spirit remains willing and continuously ready and poised to help us as promised to us in John chapter 14, we ourselves as people, our flesh is still weak. And this idea brings us to the glorious truth in verse 9 that says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Is perfected in this sentence means to bring to an end, made complete or fulfilled. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 that God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. It is in this environment, a field sown in weakness, where the Lord can accomplish power made complete, power perfected within us as frail as we might be. The truth is that even though our flesh is weak, the spirit is always willing. And the Lord tells Paul that his grace, despite Paul's weakness, is sufficient. And that despite Paul's insufficiency, his power will be perfected in him. As we all know, it is the new year and we are just chugging along through January, the longest month out of every year ever. And every 365 days, there is a fresh start, a quote unquote renewal where we can leave the old behind. And with this mindset comes an abundance of pomp and circumstance that encourages people to become different, to change, to grow into something other than what they are. But if you really look at the status of the world right now, nothing changed when the clock hit midnight and turned 2020 into 2021. I've been seeing jokes on the internet that we had a good five days of 2021 and then everything exploded. And many of us throughout the year in 2020 were just trying to make it to the end. It was like it was a horror movie and we were just trying to get out of the theater and just, and just leave it as it was. And that's where I found myself. I will admit that I found myself in a situation where I was just clawing my way to the finish, thinking that if we could escape the horror of 2020, we would be on track for a better. And many of us on a more somber note lost a lot of things in 2020. I can think of at least a dozen different things that did not come to fruition in my life due to the circumstances. And I think we've all lost something, opportunities, experiences, maybe financial losses, jobs, maybe even parts of ourselves, and maybe even people due to the virus. I don't know your situation, but for me, I had to take some serious time to sort through the year and to shift through the rubble of it all to find out what I could salvage, how I could make peace with what happened, and what I could leave behind. But this message comes so strongly as a reminder that we can be given trials in this life that will produce in us characters of godliness. I kept saying at the beginning of this podcast, what produces this remarkable character that Paul has where he is completely unwilling to exalt himself? And I think that he tells us very explicitly that he was given a thorn in the flesh, that he begged God to remove from him, and yet the Lord didn't. And praise God that he didn't, because now we have the remarkable example of Paul to look up to 
for us in our lives as Christians. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes to us from commentator John Trapp, where he says, Patience must not be an inch shorter than the affliction. If the bridge reach but halfway over the brook, we shall have but ill-favored passage. It is the devil's desire to set us on a hurry. I know for many of us, in all of the loss, all of the heartache, the struggle, the trials that we were presented in 2020, those have continued. And in John chapter 16, verse 33, the Bible explicitly tells us that we are promised to have suffering in this world. Jesus tells us himself. He says to us, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. Jesus promises it. He tells us that we will suffer and that we will have, quote, thorns in the flesh. And even when we beg the Lord to remove them sometimes, it is not in his will for our life for those thorns to be taken and to be removed. Paul bore the weight of his struggle for a full 14 years, maybe longer, maybe to the end of his death. And he lived about five or six years after writing 2 Corinthians. So maybe he bore that weight for a full 20 years. And yet it produced in him the most incredible godly character to be willing to only exalt the Lord and to not exalt himself. This scripture was especially convicting for me as I noticed that I was rushing my way through 2020 and I was very excited to get out of 2020 on the hope and the promise that there was something different lying in the months ahead. But the reality is so much more beautiful. The reality is that the years will come and they will go and they'll change and circumstances will shift, but the Lord is eternal. And the Lord, even though he promises us that we will suffer, he promises that he will stay with us and that in him we have blessed assurance of the hope that transcends the earthly years that make us turn the pages in our calendars and make us weathered and worn as we continue to live on this earth. It is, like John Trapp says, the devil's desire to set us on a hurry. So whatever you're struggling with today, whatever the thorn that the Lord has given you, relish in it. As James says in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Paul finishes this glorious section of chapter 12 by saying, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let this word marinate on your heart, brothers and sisters. Take this scripture and bind it to your soul. Stamp it on your brain so that you will never forget the glorious truth that the Lord's power is perfected in our weaknesses, that his will is accomplished when we are lowly and humble, unwilling to exalt ourselves, and then when we find ourselves in a position of weakness and unseeming attitude, maybe unseeming speech and stature, then we are the strongest that we can be. Take this idea forward as we continue to weather the difficulty of this modern age of 2021 and remember that even as you ask the Lord in good faith 
to remove trials from you. His inaction to do so means nothing other than the fact that the work he is accomplishing in you through that thorn is not yet complete. That's all for today, guys. I encourage you to continue to delight in those thorns, whatever they may be, whatever affliction you're facing. Lean on the Lord. Allow him to give you rest. And until next time, remain faithful. If you enjoyed this podcast, we will be grateful if you subscribe to the show so you can be notified when new episodes are released. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find our Instagram page at Remain Faithful Podcast or you can head over to our website at